For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Robert Oppenheimer, A Life Inside the Center, by Ray Monk. Oppenheimer's combination of genius and depression, his brilliant scientific mind, and his love for the obscure, at least from an American perspective, history of Vedic India, made him one of the most interesting figures in modern American history. Monk's biography is a sweeping look at his life, and I drew on it heavily for writing last week's episode. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. History of Japan Podcast, Episode 110, Reign of Ruin, Part 3. In July 1944, Japan definitively lost the war against the United States. Arguably, the war had been lost much sooner than that. From the time of the Battle of Midway in summer 1942, the Japanese had been on a defensive footing and had been steadily losing ground with no real plan as to how to recover. However, the fall of the island of Saipan marked a clear dividing line between this might not be going well and this is definitely not going well for two reasons. First, Saipan was the first Japanese stronghold to come under American control that was also within bomber range of the home Japanese islands themselves. From this point on, American bombers could hit Japan with increasing frequency. Now, bombing raids had already started, but they'd either been one-offs, like the infamous Doolittle Raid, or relied heavily on underdeveloped and hard-to-supply bases within the nationalist-controlled areas of China. Second, Saipan was supposed to be the decisive line in the sand for Japan. Tojo Hideki had gambled his career on being able to halt the Americans there. In his combined capacities as Prime Minister, Home Minister, and Army Minister, he diverted every resource he could get to the island with the goal of making it such a punishingly difficult target for the Americans, they would be forced to negotiate and end the war. When that plan failed, Tojo's political credibility collapsed. The island fell on July 9th, and on July 18th, Tojo and his entire cabinet resigned. Incidentally, the battle had one other tangential effect as well. Saipan was the first area taken by the Americans with a large number of Japanese civilians, some 25,000. 
many of these civilians killed themselves rather than surrender to the Americans. Japanese imperial propaganda played this up as a glorious sacrifice in the name of the emperor. The simple reality was that these civilians had been encouraged to do whatever was necessary to avoid capture, and had been fed tales of atrocity at the hands of the Americans. Somewhere around 1,000 civilians perished this way, and while the reality of the situation was substantially more nuanced, to American eyes, this would seem like further proof of U.S. propaganda about Japan. The Japanese, it seemed, really would die before they would surrender. This perception will become very important later. Now, defeat at Saipan left the Japanese government with two questions. Who was going to run the country, and how were they going to end the war? For a brief time, an imperial army general named Koiso Kuniaki took the reins, but he resigned in April 1945 in the hopes of getting sent to fight on Okinawa. His replacement as prime minister was an aging admiral named Suzuki Kantaro. Suzuki was the son of a samurai family, and he was chosen primarily because of his inoffensiveness. He had no strong political views. Suzuki had actually been born on January 18, 1868, only 15 days after the imperial court declared its power restored, and the Boshin War began. In other words, he had been born more or less at the same time as Imperial Japan itself, and he would be the one to preside over its end. Suzuki has actually appeared in our story before. He'd been targeted by extremist plotters during the February 26, 1936 coup attempt by ultra-rightist members of the army, aligned with the conservative Imperial Way faction. Suzuki became a target because of his support for the arms limitation clauses included in the London Naval Treaty of 1930, and had nearly died in the coup. Only the quick intervention of his wife, who convinced the plotters he was mortally wounded and that they could move on with their plans, saved his life. However, neither Koiso nor Suzuki could be trusted to run the country alone. Tojo Hideki had been given unprecedented power and all that resulted in was the disaster of Saipan. So Kuiso set up, and Suzuki continued, the Supreme Council for the Direction of the War, a sort of cabinet within the cabinet, consisting of six ministers who would decide policy via unanimous agreement. The members, in addition to the Prime Minister, so Suzuki at this point, were the Foreign Minister, Togo Shigenori, the War Minister, Anami Korechika, the Chief of the Army General Staff, Umezu Yoshijiro, the Navy Minister, Yonai Mitsumasa, and the Chief of the Navy General Staff, Toyota Soemu. That means there were two civilian members, the Prime and Foreign Ministers, two from the Army, and two from the Navy. Unfortunately, this neat little balancing act was often too far divided to accomplish anything. In particular, the Big Six, as the Council's often referred to, simply ended up continuing the policies put in place by Tojo of trying to create a brutal enough meat grinder to force the Americans to negotiate. Nobody thought it was a particularly good strategy, it certainly hadn't worked to this point, but there was no consensus on what to replace it with. The fundamental issue was that the Big Six were divided on the most important question they faced, how to end the war. The Dove faction, comprised of Prime Minister Suzuki, Foreign Minister Togo, and Navy Minister Yonai, wanted to reach out to the Americans and offer a deal. 
As long as the Americans promised not to prosecute or get rid of the Emperor, they were willing to sign a peace treaty. The Hawk faction, meanwhile, comprised of Anami and Umezu from the army and Toyota from the navy, were actually also willing to negotiate, but they had four conditions they demanded the Americans meet, rather than just one. In addition to protection for the Emperor, they wanted a guarantee that there would be no occupation of Japan, they wanted either not to have war crimes trials or to have those trials take place under Japanese law with Japanese courts, and to limit any attempts at disarming Japan. Neither side was willing to bend on this issue. Each viewed the other's position as potentially fatal for the state, and as a result the government found itself at a total impasse. This despite impassioned pleas to end the war from both future Prime Minister and arguably greatest Japanese politician ever, Yoshida Shigeru, who was actually imprisoned for his trouble, and from former Prime Minister Konoe Fumimaro, who arguably deserved a good deal of the blame for starting the war due to his inability to control the army in the first place. We talked a lot about Konoe in the episodes on the lead-up to war with China and to war with the United States. If you'll remember, he was an aristocrat with a very close personal relationship with Emperor Hirohito. He actually would do things like put his feet up on his desk while talking to the Emperor, which normally is not something you can get away with. Konoe used this close relationship to meet with Hirohito personally in February 1945 and argue for an end to the war. He did so not on humanitarian grounds, but because he feared that a prolonged conflict would undermine support for the imperial institution and potentially lead to a communist revolution and the final destruction of the imperial state. Hirohito was sympathetic, but apparently not so much that he was willing to abandon the pipe dream sold him by the Hawks. That Japan could get a better deal out of the United States, all they had to do was hold out and bleed the Americans to get it. Now, nobody was entirely sure of what they could get from the Americans, because American policy, as declared at the start of the war, had been that they would only accept the unconditional surrender of the Germans and the Japanese. This was mostly a savvy domestic play by President Roosevelt, who was acutely sensitive to criticism of World War I-era President Woodrow Wilson. The common wisdom of the day was that Wilson's soft attitude towards and willingness to negotiate with the German Empire resulted in the Germans not realizing the totality of their defeat, propagating a myth that they had been stabbed in the back instead. As a result, here they all were, refighting the same war 20 years later. Roosevelt didn't want to look like he was repeating Wilson's mistake, but it's unclear how much he would have hewn to this idea of actual unconditional surrender. He died before the first whiffs of Japanese willingness to talk made it to Washington. It's possible, though far from certain, that he would have proven flexible on the issue if it meant ending the war sooner. We'll never know, though, because the man who replaced him was absolutely not willing to bend. Though Harry Truman was not exactly a political novice when he became president, he had a distinguished ten-year career as a senator, he was new to the executive branch, and was deeply worried about appearing weak, ignorant, or incompetent. Very early on, he staked out a firm position on maintaining all the policies and agreements of President Roosevelt. If people did not respect his executive experience, they had to respect that of his predecessor, the longest-serving president ever. 
that included unconditional surrender. The problem, however, with a policy of unconditional surrender is that it's very unclear what it means. In particular, the imperial Japanese government was very worried about what this meant for the emperor. Was the sitting emperor going to be deposed? Was the imperial institution going to be abolished? The United States steadfastly refused to clarify. So the Japanese government was internally divided about how to end the war, and the only thing they did agree on, trying to keep the emperor, might not even be on the table. So, with no other real options on the table, the Japanese simply tried to repeat the strategy of Saipan in other areas, first in the fight for the Philippines from October 1944, then in the Battle of Okinawa from April 1945. Both times, the strategy failed to work. On April 5, 1945, things became even more desperate. The only reason the Japanese had been able to fight the U.S. at all was because their northern flank had been secure. Back when Germany and the Soviets had been getting along, two months before the German invasion of Russia, the Japanese had taken the opportunity to sign a neutrality treaty with the Soviet Union, an agreement that the two empires would not go to war. For the Japanese, this had been a political expedient that opened the road to sending the majority of their army south against the Allies. For the Soviets, it had secured their eastern territories in case of war with Germany. Now, however, that agreement was no longer expedient for the Soviets, and in April they announced that they planned to let the agreement lapse. However, the original treaty had a five-year period, meaning it would technically remain in force until April 1946. The Japanese judged that Stalin would not risk damaging his political credibility by violating a still-active treaty, and that at any rate the Soviets could not possibly get enough troops to Asia to attack before 1946, but that after 1946 the Soviets would almost certainly attack the Japanese Empire. That meant the war absolutely had to be ended before the end of 1945. In fact, this estimate was completely off-base. The Soviets had promised Roosevelt that they would attack Japan three months after the defeat of Germany, and they intended to keep that promise. Troops were being sent east for an attack in early August. And anyway, how could Japan end the war? As divided as ever, even after Okinawa fell to the Americans in June 1945, the Big Six could only think of two cards to play. First, they would try one last time to bleed the Americans into negotiating. Anybody with half a brain and a decent map could see that the next American target would be the island of Kyushu, to be used as a staging point for an attack on the mainland. All the home islands were in range of American bombers, but Kyushu was the only one in range of American fighters being sent over from Okinawa. The only way that American landers could have fighters to protect them from attack from the air would be if they attacked Kyushu, so that's where the Americans would obviously go. So the Japanese prepared for one more decisive battle, this time on Kyushu, to try and force the Americans to negotiate. The Japanese had, in fact, correctly guessed the American plan. Operation Olympic, the invasion of Kyushu, was scheduled to begin on November 1st, 1945. It would be followed up by a final attack on the region of Tokyo, Operation Coronet, scheduled for March 1946. 
Now, to stop the American invasion of Kyushu, the Japanese moved thousands of troops and supplies, and they got these troops and supplies by denuding the border with Russia. After all, the Japanese and the Russians had a treaty, so the Russians weren't going to attack until 1946, right? Second, the Japanese would try to negotiate through an intermediary to convince the Americans that unconditional surrender had to be abandoned. But who would be willing to act as a go-between? They couldn't just use any neutral nation. They needed someone close to the Americans but friendly to Japan and powerful enough to stand up to American pressure. And there was only one major power with that kind of clout who was not already at war with Japan. The Soviet Union. So that's who the Japanese turned to. From May 1945 onward, the Soviet ambassador to Japan, Yakov Malik, was invited to discuss terms for Soviet diplomatic intervention on Japan's behalf with a special envoy, former Prime Minister Koki Hirota. The Japanese ambassador to the Soviet Union, Sato Naotake, was ordered to make the same overtures to Soviet Foreign Minister Vyacheslav Molotov, and even to propose high-level diplomatic talks between Joseph Stalin and Konoe Fumimaro. Both Malik and Molotov strung the Japanese along with empty promises that were all basically variations on the theme of, sounds interesting, we'll think about it. Except, of course, that they were not thinking about it. They were not thinking about it at all. The simple fact of the matter was that the Japanese would never offer anything comparable to what the Soviets could simply take by force. For example, even though they absolutely could not afford to defend Korea, the Japanese refused to negotiate over its status. At any rate, the limited concessions offered by the Japanese in exchange for Soviet help were not at all worth the risk of potentially alienating the United States. This was pretty obvious to any unbiased observer. Sato Naotake, the Japanese ambassador to Russia, explained just this to the foreign ministry and called the whole plan ridiculous, but he was just told to shut up and get with the program. After all, it might be a bad plan, but a bad plan is better than no plan, right? Except, in this case, a bad plan actually was worse than no plan, because the Soviets realized very early on that if they could convince the Japanese that maybe, just maybe, this whole plan of negotiations was going to work, the Japanese would not reinforce their border with Russia, making the Soviet invasion that was definitely coming at this point even easier. So the Soviets continuously strung the Japanese along. In the United States, meanwhile, it was clear by May 1945 that atomic weapons would soon be ready to use, raising the important question of how to use them. What should be the target for this new destructive weapon? To answer these questions, President Truman established the innocuous-sounding Interim Committee in 1945. Like Roosevelt before him, he maintained personal deniability about the project by never attending a session himself and instead relying on a personal representative, U.S. Senator James F. Burns, who would become Secretary of State shortly after the committee completed its work. The committee was comprised of a mix of scientific, military, and civilian leaders, and charged with deciding how to use the bomb. In particular, they were responsible for deciding if warnings should be given prior to its use. Burns presented his recommendation during the committee's June 1st meeting, which would eventually become the committee's final consensus presented to and approved by President Truman. Quote, that the weapon be used against Japan at the earliest opportunity, 
that it be used without warning, and that it be used on a dual target, namely a military installation or war plant surrounded by or adjacent to homes and other buildings most susceptible to damage. This would be the position of the committee. Note the phrasing, a military installation or war plant surrounded by homes, not a city. The older ethical issues surrounding strategic bombing meant that the targeting decision still had to be couched in the logic of attacking military targets, not civilian ones. Bombing had to be at least nominally about attacking war potential, not terrorizing civilians, even when the sheer scale of the bomb involved meant that there would really be no distinction. The scientific advisors to the interim committee presented a more nuanced opinion. A summary report written on June 1st reads, quote, The opinions of our scientific colleagues on the initial use of these weapons are not unanimous. They range from the proposal of a purely technical demonstration to that of the military application best designed to induce surrender. Those who advocate purely technical demonstration would wish to outlaw the use of atomic weapons, and have feared that if we use the weapons now our position in future negotiations will be prejudiced. Others emphasize the opportunity of saving American lives by immediate military use, and believe that such use will improve international prospects with the prevention of war rather than with the elimination of this specific weapon. We find ourselves closer to these latter views. We can propose no technical demonstration likely to bring an end to the war. We can see no acceptable alternative to direct military use." Only one committee member dissented, Under Secretary of the Navy Ralph Bard. Bard believed the United States had a moral duty to warn the Japanese before using the bomb, because failing to do so would undermine its moral credibility. He also suggested that informing the Japanese of Russia's likely entry into the war, in combination with a guarantee that the emperor would be allowed to keep his life, would induce the Japanese to surrender then and there. His recommendations were ignored, and he resigned a month later. An earlier committee had already selected target sites. Five cities were chosen, all of which had either been only lightly attacked or not attacked at all up until this point. Kyoto, Hiroshima, Yokohama, Kokura, and Niigata. With the exception of Kyoto, all were major military bases. Hiroshima was a regional headquarters for the army, Yokohama and Kokura held substantial naval arsenals, and Niigata was one of very few ports which, by virtue of its remote location, had not been completely shut down by American blockades. Kyoto was the outlier, a cultural and political rather than military target. The decision to add it to the list rested with Leslie Groves, who believed that, quote, Kyoto has the advantage of the people being more highly intelligent and hence better able to appreciate the significance of the weapon, end quote. In addition, the city's mountainous geography would magnify the blast. Kyoto lies within a sort of shallow bowl ringed by mountains, which would theoretically serve to contain and amplify the blast from the bomb. However, Groves was stopped in his tracks by Secretary of War Henry Stimson. Stimson had actually visited Kyoto in his younger days and loved the city. He believed the Japanese would never forgive the United States for destroying it. He removed Kyoto from the list and managed to keep it off despite Groves repeatedly trying to go over his head to keep it on. 
However, something had to replace Kyoto on the target list. A new target, the small Kyushu port city of Nagasaki, was added in its stead. Armed with this target list, the plan for the final use of the bomb went ahead. The components were shipped to the island of Tinian in the Pacific, where a specially trained bomber squadron began drilling on how to use them. In July, meanwhile, President Truman made his way to Potsdam and met with Joseph Stalin and Winston Churchill to draft up a final declaration calling on Japan to surrender. The exact wording of the Potsdam Declaration of July 26, 1945 is unimportant. You can look it up if you like. The key thing for the Japanese leaders in the Big Six reading the statement was what it didn't mention rather than what it did. First, the success of the Manhattan Project was nowhere to be found. There's no hint that the United States had an atomic bomb. Second, yet again there was no mention made of what, if anything, was going to be done with the Emperor. Third, and finally, Joseph Stalin did not sign the declaration. Only Churchill, Truman, and Chiang Kai-shek did. We'll get further into the first two in future episodes, but for now I want to focus on the third. We actually know from Soviet archives opened in the 1990s that Stalin wanted to sign the declaration. He thought it would provide legal cover for his plan to violate his neutrality treaty with Japan. This way he could cloak his violation in international law. Sure, he'd broken his word given to another country, but only to work with the international community to bring an end to this simply awful war. However, Truman vetoed the idea. He wanted the Soviet invasion of Japanese territory to be a surprise, and to catch the Japanese off guard with as little warning as possible. This meant that when the Big Six in Tokyo took a look at the declaration and saw that Stalin had not signed it, they continued to believe that their plan of trying to get the Soviets to intercede on Japan's behalf might work. That would get him a better deal, which meant there was no reason to cave to the Allies just yet. So when Prime Minister Suzuki was asked for a reply to the ultimatum by the Japanese press, he said something along the lines of, well, it's not that much different from their previous statements. Then, he used a Japanese word, mokusatsu, that was translated in Allied press summaries as ignore, as in, we will ignore it. The exact nuances of meaning for the phrase have been debated ever since. Arguably, it translates equally well as, I'm not quite sure what to do about it. Certainly, as America's Japan experts pointed out at the time, Replies to official diplomatic overtures do not come via the press. The Japanese press was primarily propaganda, and any official response by the Japanese was likely to come via a neutral intermediary like Sweden or Portugal. Still, anything less than an immediate we accept from the Japanese probably would not have averted what was coming. From this point on, we enter the final denouement of the war a series of events that we're going to interpret and reinterpret many different ways over the next few weeks. This time through, though, I'm just going to give you the sequence of events. First, on July 25th, the order to begin using the bombs was given by Acting Chief of Staff Tom Handy to the commander of the airgroup charged with deploying them based on Tinian Island, General Carl Spatz. This, again, is the only written order for the use of the bomb. There are three things we should note here. 
First, the order was given the day before the Potsdam Proclamation was issued, the 26th, suggesting that Allied commanders did not expect the proclamation to work, and that the war would continue on. Second, Truman did not sign the order. There are no written documents from Truman authorizing the use of the bomb. The only evidence we have of his decision comes from post-war recollections set down about a decade later, which are unreliable for all the reasons that testimony far separated from the events being discussed is considered unreliable. There's one document, a scribbled note on the back of a memo saying something like, release when ready, that's sometimes pointed to as an order from Truman to use the bomb, but if you read the other side of the memo, it's clear that it's a reference to a press statement about the bomb, not the bomb itself. Third and finally, there's no mention of advanced warning for the city, and the interim committee had already decided against such warnings. No leaflets discussing the bomb were dropped over Japan until after the bombing of Hiroshima. The time required to reassemble the bombs after shipping them, combined with weather conditions, meant that the first one, the uranium bomb, was not ready to go until August 6th. On that morning, a group of six B-29 bombers, one with the bomb, the others for weather and scientific observation, took off for Japan. The plane carrying the bomb was named the Enola Gay, named for Enola Gay Tibbets, mother of Paul Tibbets, the plane's pilot. Hiroshima was priority target number one, and the weather was ideal for sighting and dropping a bomb. The weapon, in all its horror, which, believe me, we will be spending time on in future episodes, was dropped on the city at 8.15am local time. The casualties are difficult to estimate because of later deaths related to radiation poisoning and complications from damage caused by the bomb. All told, some 70 to 80,000 people died immediately, with tens of thousands more dying later of radiation poisoning, burns, and other injuries, including actually a group of Allied prisoners of war held in the city, as well as a prince of the Imperial Dynasty of Korea, Yi Wu, who had been serving in the Japanese army. In Tokyo, it was not immediately clear what had happened. The bomb had destroyed all communication and transportation infrastructure in the city, making it hard to find out what had occurred. The Big Six dispatched a team to Hiroshima led by Nishina Yoshio, Japan's foremost atomic scientist, to determine if rumors that an atomic bomb had been dropped were true. Nishina, who just a few years earlier had told the government that constructing such a weapon was impossible for the moment, reported back with chagrin on the 8th that it was an atomic bomb. In the United States, Truman, back from Potsdam, released a statement to the country upon receiving the news that the bomb had been used and had worked. Here it is in his own words. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many-fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction 
to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. We are now prepared to destroy more rapidly and completely every productive enterprise the Japanese have in any city. We shall destroy their docks, their factories, and their communications. Let there be no mistake, we shall completely destroy Japan's power to make war. It was to spare the Japanese people from utter destruction that the ultimatum of July the 26th was issued at Potsdam. Their leaders promptly rejected that ultimatum. If they do not now accept our terms, they may expect a rain of ruin from the air the like of which has never been seen on this earth. Behind this air attack will follow sea and land forces in such numbers and power as they have not yet seen and with the fighting skill of which they are already well aware. We have spent more than two billion dollars on the greatest scientific gamble in history, and we have won. But the greatest marvel is not the size of the enterprise, its secrecy, or its cost, but the achievement of scientific brains in making it work. And hardly less marvelous has been the capacity of industry to design and of labor to operate the machines and methods to do things never done before. Both science and industry work together under the direction of the United States Army, which achieved a unique success in an amazingly short time. It is doubtful if such another combination could be got Japan's together Japan's however, remained paralyzed with indecision. Is the greatest achievement All the fundamental issues they had surrounding surrender remained unanswered in particular, the questions relating to the Emperor. Besides, overtures to the Soviet Union remained on the table, and who even knew if the Americans had managed to finish more than one bomb? On August 8th, however, things shifted once more. First, Japanese ambassador to Russia Sato Naotake was called into the office of Vyacheslav Molotov. Expecting a response to requests for a high-level meeting between Stalin and former Prime Minister Konole, he was instead handed a declaration of war. Soviet troops had already begun streaming into Manchuria. The remains of Japan's elite Kwantung army based there, stripped as they had been to defend against an American invasion of Kyushu, were utterly unprepared to face the hardened veterans who had done the bulk of the work crushing the German Wehrmacht. The Japanese were utterly destroyed. Second, on the morning of the 9th, a second group of six B-29s took off for Japan with a second bomb. This time, the plutonium model developed at Hanford and tested in New Mexico. Their primary target was the Yawata Steel Mill in Kokura in southern Honshu. 
but heavy cloud cover obscured the target, and the crew were under orders to only use the weapons with clean visual aiming shots, not to try and target them with less accurate radar shots. They were forced to divert to a secondary target. The original secondary target was the city of Niigata, former home of Tanaka Kakue, but a fuel pump issue cut the range of the lead B-29, to the point where reaching Niigata and returning would have been impossible. So instead they went for the third target, the port city of Nagasaki. Nagasaki 2 was covered with clouds, but mission commander Charles Sweeney ordered the weapon to be used anyway. The only other alternatives were to ditch an armed bomb into the Pacific, or try landing with an armed bomb on Okinawa. In the former case, Sweeney was worried about being blamed for wasting the weapon, and nervous that the Japanese would try to salvage it. In the latter, he wasn't sure if a bumpy landing would have set the bomb off. It probably would not have, but he had no way of knowing. At 11.01am, the second bomb was dropped. The number killed in Nagasaki varies even more than in Hiroshima. The lowball estimate is around 39,000 dead by the end of 1945, either from the blast or from lingering injuries. The highball estimate is around 80,000. Deprived of their last two hopes of salvation, that the Americans were out of bombs, and that the Soviets would come in to help Japan, on August 10th an imperial conference was called where the entire cabinet, including the Big Six, would meet before the Emperor. Foreign Minister Togo and Prime Minister Suzuki had organized the whole thing. Since consensus could not be achieved on what to do, even at this late hour, they would ask the Emperor to intercede. He did, and declared support for the peace faction. A message would be sent to the Americans, using the Swiss as intermediaries, stating that Japan accepted the terms of the Potsdam Proclamation, on the condition that, but with a single condition, that the proclamation, quote, does not comprise any demand which prejudices the prerogatives of his majesty as sovereign ruler. In other words, that Japan would still have an emperor. By the way, fun fact, the man responsible for that little addendum is none other than Hironuma Kiichiro, who you might remember as the author of the Peace Preservation Law of 1925, which made dictatorship in Japan possible, and as the chief prosecutor in the Great Treason Case, who argued for, successfully, having Kotoku Shusui executed, despite having no evidence that Kotoku had committed a crime. In the United States, this reply was greeted with consternation. As the President's Japan experts pointed out, Hironuma's little addendum undercut the whole reason for the war. His Majesty's prerogatives as sovereign ruler were the fundamental underpinnings of the imperial state, and if the emperor was allowed to keep them, there would be no hope of successfully turning Japan into a democracy. Here, Secretary of State James Burns proposed a course of action that was eventually adopted. The American reply to the Japanese clarified that, quote, from the moment of surrender, the authority of the emperor and the Japanese government to rule the state shall be subjected to the supreme commander of the allied powers, who will take such steps as he deems proper to effectuate the surrender terms. This reply was calculated to do two things. Avoid compromise on the issue of democratization, which was going to happen if the emperor liked it or not, and make it clear that at least, for now, there would be an emperor. Burns gambled that dangling the slim hope of keeping the emperor would get the Japanese to agree, and it worked like a charm. 
reassured that he would not be immediately deposed, since, after all, if his authority was to be subjected to the Supreme Commander of the Allied Powers, it would mean he still had authority. Emperor Hirohito declared before another cabinet meeting on the 14th that he accepted the Americans' terms. General Anami, head of the Army Ministry, was reportedly unable to cover up his horrified reaction. Noticing it, Hirohito turned to Anami and said simply, Anami, it's going to be alright. It almost was not alright. An abortive coup to prevent the surrender almost resulted in the seizure of the palace grounds, but Army Minister Anami, unable to refuse a direct order from the Emperor, refused to back the coup, and other loyal units put it down. Afterwards, Anami penned a short note, quote, With my death, I apologize to the Emperor for my great crime, and killed himself via seppuku. What exactly the great crime was is a matter of some debate. Was it losing the war? Briefly considering helping the coup plotters? Failing to order them all arrested and simply passively standing back instead? We'll never know. At any rate, the broadcast informing the Japanese people of the end of the war went out on August 15th, though pointedly at no time was the word surrender ever used in the broadcast, and a separate broadcast informing Japanese soldiers to lay down their arms went out the same time. The war was over. Next week, we'll begin looking at the events I've just discussed through the lenses of different schools of thought that have grown around them. Next week will be a traditionalist defense of the bomb. As knowledge of the weapon and revulsion about its effects spread, American academics and leaders were forced to take to the public forum to defend the actions of the final months of the war and make the case that the bomb, while not good in and of itself, was necessary. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks to Patrick Wong for donating to support the show. To join him, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for Reign of Ruin, Part 4. worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft lifelock ultimate plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement lifelock alerts you to identity threats you might miss and if your identity is stolen your dedicated u.s-based restoration specialist will work to fix it let lifelock help protect what you've worked so hard for save 25 off your first year on lifelock ultimate plus at lifelock.com aware terms apply